When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Since 2015, Zachary Kinslow has worked at the President James K. Polk Home and Museum in Columbia, Tennessee, and he's come on Presidencies to talk not just about James and Sarah Polk, but also about Elias Polk an individual enslaved by the Polks for a good portion of Elias' life. Zach received an associate's degree in history from Columbia State Community College, a bachelor's degree from Martin Methodist College, and a master's degree from Austin Peay State University. His article, Enslaved and Entrenched, The Complex Life of Elias Polk, was published online by the White House Historical Association in February 2017. Zach has presented at numerous conferences, with the most recent being the James K. Polk and His Time Symposium at the East Tennessee Historical Society, segments of which were broadcast by C-SPAN 3. In addition to his work on President Polk and American slavery, Zach has worked as a graduate intern on the papers of President Martin Van Buren at Cumberland University and published the article Martin Van Buren, James K. Polk, and Second Party Sectionalism in the 2019 edition of the Phi Alpha Theta, Theta Delta Collegiate Journal of History. I do have links to Zach's article and appearance on C-SPAN 3 available on the podcast social media, as well as the source notes page for this episode. So after watching the interview, go and check those out. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So, Zach, thank you so much for taking time to be here and to join us here on Presidencies. I greatly appreciate it. And um, to get us started, I actually wanted to mention that I don't think I've mentioned this in our conversations back and forth, uh, but I'd actually heard about your work uh, with Elias Polk uh, before we ever talked. Uh, I participated in the uh, Slave Dwelling Project. Uh, They did an overnight at the Polk House uh, here in Pineville. Okay, yeah. And in our conversations, they mentioned that there was a graduate student who was studying Elias Polk and uh, started talking about some of the research that you were doing and some of the things that you were finding. So whenever you reached out to me, I was like, wow, okay, I put two and two together. It's like, so it's great to be able to talk with you and connect with you on that. So um, yeah, yeah, to, get us, to get us started, um, where, where did your interest in James K. Polk start? Uh, so I, I'm from a, a small kind of rural farming agricultural community in, um, in Middle Tennessee. It's called uh, Mount Pleasant, mm-hmm. it's about 16 miles south of Columbia. Uh, and it's one of those towns that's really small enough that if you can do something fun, you go to a. a I initially uh, got my associate's degree. Oh, are you there? Columbia to uh, yeah, I'm right here. Okay, here, we good? sorry. <laughs> yes, um, I was attending a community college, getting my associate's degree at the time, and one of the projects we had to do was 
to go to a historic site and kind of write a paper about our experience at the site. And uh, the closest for me was, was the Polk home. Um, and it's a smaller site, so I was the only one on tour, and I had been maybe three or four times already. Um, and it was just one of those things where it was more of a conversation with the guide as opposed to really a, a guided tour. And um, I believe it was a, a docent we have here named Barbara, who at the end was like, hey, you're pretty good at this. Um, have you thought about working here? Uh, and so I filled out an application and a year and a half later, oh gosh, I got hired on at the Polk home and I, I've been here for the last, uh, four and a half years now. Excellent. And so really, um, best answer is when you're a history major and you have a presidential site in your hometown, you might as well take advantage of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, it, it's an opportunity that you can't miss, huh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So thinking about uh, Polk, um, how would you describe Polk's personality? Uh, so Polk is described in records as being cold but polite. Uh, and the way I view that is he, he's not really a people person. Um, in front of a crowd, he gains the nickname, nickname Napoleon of the Stump because he is really uh, charismatic. He can really command the crowd. Like Napoleon on, on the battlefield, James Polk, um, uh, speaking before a crowd. But on one-on-one, he, he's not really into small talk. He really kind of, like I said, he's not a people person. Um, you ever talk to anyone and you kind of realize about halfway through the conversation, they're just trying to get away from you? Uh, that's James Polk about every conversation he's going to have. With um, he'd rather be alone in his office doing paperwork um, than anything else, uh, which is where his wife comes in because Sarah is very more warm and inviting. She, she really kind of, they balance each other out in this respect. Uh, where James Polk is is kind of colder and distant. He's a very nice guy, uh, but he is distant. Sarah Polk is is really kind of the, the PR person for the Polk administration, if you will. She kind of opens her husband up to these crowds and get, gets him to go out there and do things that otherwise he, he would have really no interest in. Um, but, but cold but polite is a good way to describe James Polk. Well, and it's interesting because that, that kind of relationship, it almost sounds like uh, James and Dolly Madison, that same kind of dynamic. Yeah, it's really close to that. Um, we can see, uh, in fact, Dolly Madison is still alive during Polk's administration. She's living not in, in Montpelier at this point. She's in, in Lafayette Square uh, at this time. And, and she's friends with the Polks. Um, she's friends with the Polks. Sarah and her have a pretty interesting relationship. Um, and James, whenever Dolly Madison is at the White House, James is the one who escorts her uh, through the home. We do see that, that they, they do have a lot in common. Sarah Polk kind of tries to model herself after Dolly Madison in a way. I will say um, she does take it a step further as where Dolly Madison does her political uh, workings through the women of Washington. Sarah Polk really kind of goes directly to the men, which does leave her open for kind of criticism as a woman during the time doing these things. Um, but she does do that. She kind of models herself on Dolly Madison in that way. Um, and it goes even further, I, I suppose, knowing the Madison connection, um, it was Paul Jennings, uh, the enslaved man of, of the Madison White House, yeah. was actually also enslaved at the Polk White House. Wow. Uh, it was common for, for slave owners to, to rent out, if you will, enslaved people and, and have them work for others. And during the White House years, James and Sarah bring Paul Jennings into the White House. They felt he had already been there and kind of knew what he was doing around the, around the home. So they did bring him in for, for a short time uh, before he, he was sold off by Don Madison. I didn't know that. Well, and- There's a book on Paul Jennings. Uh, a life in the slave at the White House, or something. I can't remember what it is. Um, I'll send it to you. For later oh, thank on. you. It, it mentions it mentions the Polk connection. Uh, it, it was slight. It was a very short time, but but there was that even uh, as well. 
Definitely. Well, at this time, you get so many of those different connections, so many former presidents, future presidents connecting in this antebellum period. It's really in, in other figures as well, you know, other you know, cabinet members to enslaved individuals, um, yeah. that there are all these connections going on. Um, well, and, and speaking about that, so, you know, Polk had a career before becoming president, even though, you know, he's known as the dark horse president coming out of nowhere. He was still rather well known in Washington circles because he had served as speaker of the house. Right. So I think that the whole, um, the whole moniker of dark horse is kind of odd for James Polk to really have. Mm -hmm. Um, he's a dark horse really only because he wasn't fully expected to win the nomination, if you will, for, for his, his presidency for instance, he was not even on the first seven ballots at the convention. He shows up on the eighth and then he wins on the ninth, uh, then runs for president against Henry Clay of all people. Yeah. Um, uh, but what we do see is, yeah, James Polk has a really illustrious political career, um, before he, he runs for president and he's some, he's someone that most Americans had either heard of, or if you're a Democrat, you would have been more familiar with, uh, mm-hmm. James Polk had been a, a seven term congressman, uh, representing what was then Tennessee's sixth district. Um, James Polk, during that time, he, he's chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is a, probably one of the most powerful jobs you could have in, in Washington. Absolutely. Uh, he's a two-term Speaker of the House of Representatives, which makes him the only president to have been Speaker of the House. Um, he left the speakership, and then he served one term as governor of Tennessee. Um, and then he loses re-election twice for governor, of course, but um, then he comes back and he ends up winning the nomination and running for president. So, so yeah, he, he's recognized as a dark horse candidate for, for president because of the situation at the convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, James Polk is in Washington circles. They know exactly who he is. Um, if you're a Democrat, you, you know who he is. And if you're an American at the time, you, you probably at least have heard of James Polk. Whether you're too familiar with what he stands for or what he's not, you, pro- you probably have heard of him at the time. Definitely. Well, and, and it's interesting, you know, um, this time period, you know, you've got the rise of the Whig party, the second party system developing. And, you know, the fact that Polk is in one of these pivotal positions, you know, as speaker of the house and um, then becomes, you know, governor of Tennessee and, and really is playing a role in the politics of the time. Uh, and the speakership uh, definitely was different then than it, than what we think of as the speaker of the house. Now, um, what would you say that, in terms of Polk's time as speaker, uh, what was his influence on the development of that role? Uh, as influence as speaker? Mm-hmm. Um, so Polk is, Polk is definitely always in, would be through his president. He's a micromanager. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, he is partisan. We're not going to try to say Polk was, you know, uh, this time, you know, I hear it, um, whether it's Fox or CNN, I hear it on both both stations, and it kind of annoys me just being a guy that works in history. Is we've never been more divided in the history of this country than we are today. <laughs> oh, no, we fought a civil war first off, so no, we've yeah. been more divided. It, it, um, we, we've got a ways to go. Oh yeah, but also, I mean, um, political parties have always tended to hate each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, going back to think, you know, Jefferson versus Hamilton uh, in the exactly. early days of the country to 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 Polk and and the Whigs. Um, so it is a partisan time. So it's it's not necessarily. Um, in that respect, James Polk is, is a really kind of stickler for the rules when it comes in that way. He, he's by the book, what the law says, he may have some fluctuation with that. 
but it really seemed to be by the book. He's a very legalistic guy in that respect. One of his biggest things that he's most known for during his time as speaker is issuing the gag rule, mm-hmm. uh, which would be probably more famous in the 1850s than anything else, 40s and 50s as, um, uh, sorry, the 1830s, 40s and 50s, as um, the issue of slavery really becomes the big issue. Uh, James Polk's a slaveholder. Uh, he is going to hand down the gag rule saying you can't debate slavery in, in the House of Representatives. Uh, we can't even bring it up for debate. Uh, it's not going to be an issue. We're not going to talk about it. Two things. Polk's a slave owner himself, mm-hmm. so he has a vested interest in keeping it around. But from that legalistic mindset, James Polk kind of understands the toxicity of the issue. Uh, it's not going to be – you're not going to convince an abolitionist that slavery is good. You're not really going to convince John Calhoun that it's, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to try to push the issue away. Unfortunately, you get people like John Quincy Adams who, who are just going to continue pushing uh, for the abolition or anti-slavery views in that point, which does annoy Polk. Um, but in the respect, we're going to talk about James Polk and growing the, the position of Speaker of the House. Um, I don't know really if we could say that, that he grew much of it at all. Um, he, he's just kind of day-by-day business as, as usual when it comes to it. He's definitely a Jacksonian. Uh, I think more if we're going to talk about anything, Polk at that time is really going to push the Jacksonian narrative above everything else. Um, really make it more of a partisan position than, than it really had maybe been before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but definitely it, it comes down to, to more of Jackson, Jacksonian policy as opposed to growing, I would say, that the position of Speaker of the House uh, more than it had been before or after. Well, and, and it's interesting. It almost seems like he was taking a cue from Henry Clay in his tenure as Speaker, you know, definitely getting involved in the, the machinations, the day-to-day, in order to advance an agenda. Yeah. So, yeah. So Polk is going to be, is going to be behind the scenes guy mm-hmm. uh, in a way, a lot like kind of how, uh, Ma- what Martin Van Buren and other Jacksonians were good at. Uh, Henry Clay was a good example. Um, the wheeling and dealing behind the scenes, kind of using the position of speaker of the house to say, okay, um, I can influence the legislation either way. Um, if you're going to vote and support this piece of legislation that I want done, I'll make sure that your piece of legislation really kind of goes through. And using those party mechanisms and his position as speaker to really a- advance the Jacksonian policies of the day, um, really what it is, which he takes that cue from Henry Clay, which, which is a great, great point to hit on. That his later opponent, the presidency, he kind of learns from uh, in that very yeah. same. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Exactly. Well, and, and speaking of um, Jacksonianism and kind of the, the Jackson um, policies, um, 
so there's a lot that's been written about Polk being Jackson's protege. You know, he earned the, the nickname Young Hickory. Um, how would you say that Polk's tenure as president compares with that of Jackson? And did he stay true to Jackson's policies? Or were there areas when he became president that he deviated from old Hickory's viewpoints? So it's both. Um, so ultimately, if we're ever going to talk about James Polk, it's just a given we have to kind of talk about Jackson as well. I mean, Jackson is old Hickory. Polk is, is young Hickory. So definitely they see Polk as they run him in 1844 as more of the, the second coming of Andrew Jackson, if you will. Jackson's mm-hmm. finally got a third term, I guess, uh, when James Polk becomes president. And, and we do see Polk has, even at times, in fact, um, one of the things that really hit me when, you know, that they, the History Channel did the, the president series. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, the first like two minutes of the Polk section is about Jackson, <laughs> which was like, okay, okay, there's that. Um, also, they even went on to say that, ja- that Polk was more of a Jacksonian than Jackson was um, at times, which I think we could really kind of understand that. So Polk is going to come p- become president in 1845, and he's going to you know, oversee a series of, of Jacksonian measures in this way. Um, but he does deviate at times from the Jacksonian narrative. Uh, so Jackson dies during Polk's presidency shortly after, you know, James Polk takes office in March of 1845. Jackson's dead by June 45. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Polk doesn't really have Jackson kind of standing over him like other presidents had. And so he has a bit more leeway in this, but he's still going to adhere to the Jacksonian policy. So Polk, uh, you know, Jackson is, is an expansionist uh, as well. He wouldn't add Texas for, for political reasons, uh, militaristic reasons, economic reasons during his administration. But Polk is going to bring in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was endorsed and backed by Jackson. Um, Polk, you know, is going to expand us west of the Pacific Ocean, and that expansionist legacy was really carried on through the Jacksonian policies. Um, but we also see Polk do two other things. Polk is going to lower tariff rates uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes down to it, what, what he, he's kind of in lockstep with Jackson. Let me, let me back up just one second. He's in lockstep with Jackson as far as the expansionist mindset of the day. Um, but when it comes to more of economic goals, is where he kind of has a deviation here. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is, is the economic policies over Jackson, you know, Jackson does slightly lower the tariff, but it's still pretty high. And he's going to destroy the National Bank, which is probably one of the bigger things Jackson is known for. Exactly. So Polk is actually having to deal with these economic troubles that are still affecting the nation when he becomes president. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of no secret that Jackson is at fault for some of these things. Um, but what Polk is going to do, he's going to do the whole politician thing where he comes out and says one thing, but kind of behind the scenes is doing maybe another. Um, we kind of forget these people are still politicians in their day and they have exactly. to give deference to other people. Um, and so what Polk is going to do is he's going to lower tariff rates. You know, he kind of says, OK, the industry is being protective still. We're going to drop it down to around 25 percent, which is still kind of high. But for the time, it really was about average. Um, but the big thing for Polk is the development of the independent treasury system. He's going to rework what Jackson had already put in place with the pet banks. Mm-hmm. He kind of goes, okay, it's not really right for the states to have control of the federal funding here. That's, that's not doing well. But also, I don't want the National Bank because I don't want that, you know, that there. So what he ends up doing is he ends up separating state and federal funding. Now, Polk's not a big idea guy. He's really a good, good an actor. He's more of a Martin Van Buren plan. Van Buren just never really could get it there. Exactly. Uh, but Polk ultimately is going to get it there. But when he comes out and people are saying, hold, this is kind of close to a national bank, what you're doing here. This is not Jacksonian. But what Polk is ultimately going to push a narrative of, no, hey, guys, this is what Jackson would have done. This is what Jackson wanted. 
it was the Whig Party. It was it was, you know, John Tyler and William Henry Harrison and even Martin Van Buren to a lesser extent. The other presidents that just weren't following with what Jackson wanted to do. I'm doing what Jackson wanted behind the scenes. He's kind of reversing some of Jackson's policies yeah. um, to the to the front. He is still giving Jackson that deference there. Um, and so I, I will say he is a Jacksonian in narrative. He's a Jacksonian when it comes to his expansionist ideology. As far as some economic leanings, Polk's a pragmatist more than anything else. Um, wouldn't say he leans with the Whigs because uh, he's not. A, he doesn't support a national bank. Um, but definitely, if he notices something's not quite working, he's willing to to, to change on that. Whereas Jackson, it's you know, one way, and that's even if it's wrong, that's the way we're going. Um, Absolutely, we do have that that kind of Jacksonian influence, but also a departure at times. Well, and, and it's interesting, and I think you, you made a good point in pointing out that Jackson did pass away so early on in Polk's presidency, which allowed him this freedom that, you know, Martin Van Buren didn't have during his tenure because, you know, here he's trying to be president and you see at times, you know, trying to kind of deviate from the Jacksonian viewpoint, but then here comes Andrew Jackson. No, you need to do this. No, you need to stick with it. Polk's on that same way because we've got to remember James Polk is Speaker of the House when Martin Van Buren becomes president. Exactly. And there's a whole series of letters because the, the um, panic of 1837 hits, like right as Van Buren becomes president. And he notices that the economic policies of Jackson, you know, species regular and um, the, the destruction of the National Bank, um, these things are really not working. And he wants to try to fix these problems. And you got Jackson from Nashville saying, hey, don't change it. It's going to work out. Just don't change it. And then you've got James Polk in Washington, who's writing Van Buren letters saying, hey, the Whigs are going to tell you that the National Bank is going to fix it all. Don't listen to him. Jackson's right. Don't change it. I won't support you if you change it kind of thing like that. Exactly. So, so I mean, he's got old Hickory and he's got young Hickory facing against uh, a president who's really caught in an unprecedented time in our history, trying to be a pragmatist when, when his own constituents are trying to force him out of that role. Absolutely. Well, and um, to kind of change the subject a little bit, um, because at the end of Polk's presidency, you know, he, he goes out of office. He said that he was only going to serve one term. He did that. Um, one of the one of the bits of trivia that Polk is most well known for is that his post presidency was so short. Uh, shortest. It was 103 days. And so since we're speaking on the anniversary of Polk's death, um, would you mind sharing some uh, details about, you know, about his death, why he had such a sudden death? Right. So James Polk. um, So I wish I had here with me uh, the images of him as president, because there's two really good paintings by George Peter Alexander Healy. Mm. Uh, One done in 1846 and one done just after Polk dies around 1849. And the aging of James Polk in office is, is, is really, really interesting. He, he's 49 when he becomes president, so he's the youngest person up to that time to become president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the official portrait of James Polk, he is 50 years old. And then two and a half years later, uh, he's gone from a young man with, with, with jet black hair to a thinner, haggard, older man with, with, with slick back, longer white hair. Um, the presidency really took its toll on James Polk, and and he leaves the presidency in March of 1849, uh, very tired. Um, now James Polk I- is great. Um, we know so much about him only because he is meticulous in his record keeping. Uh, James Polk kept a copy of almost every letter he ever wrote. Wow. 
he made copies or kept every almost every letter that was sent to him. Wow. Um, he would even send them down to printing presses, have them printed up and bound into books. Um, so that's why we know so much about James Polk at the time. Uh, and he is one of the fewer presidents that actually kept a diary during his administration. Um, and so he has four volume diary, uh, kept one each year. He's president of the United States. It starts maybe six months into the presidency. Uh, he had been misquoted in a newspaper. Um, and, Mar- and his secretary of state, James Buchanan, mm-hmm. actually was the one who suggested, you know, you've been misquoted, maybe leave a record for people to, to be correct what your real thoughts and feelings are. So, so he takes him up on that. And he, he buys a, he buys a journal and starts keeping one daily. Wow. Um, of his thoughts and feelings. And, and he kind of, you know, at the first maybe couple or maybe not as intimate, we understand he might be writing it for future people because he writes in the third person initially. Mm. The president did this today, met with Secretary of State, parentheses, James Buchanan, things like that. Uh, and then the last two volumes, he's just like writing I and me and the Secretary of State or things like that. And right as he leaves the presidency, he's talking about being fatigued. He's talking about being tired no matter how much he sleeps. It doesn't feel like it's enough. Um, he's nauseous all the time and he's not sick at this point. He hasn't, he hasn't gotten sick. It's just the, the, the exhaustion from the presidency. Um, he takes a tour of the South. He takes a steamboat tour around the Gulf and up the Mississippi, um, stops at Charleston. And then he visits New Orleans. In fact, he was going to stop in New Orleans and give a speech there. But as they're coming up the Mississippi, they pass other steamboats and they warn of an outbreak of cholera in New Orleans. And so Polk decides, I'm not really going to spend too much time here. And there was, I will say, in the spring of 1849, there was a very intense cholera epidemic in, in the country. Outbreaks in Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, Atlanta, New Orleans, Nashville, mm-hmm. um, D.C. even. So, I mean, it's going to be hard for Polk to get away from. It. Yeah. Um, he ends up getting back to Tennessee around April uh, of 1849. Uh, he actually spends two weeks here at the Polk home. There was an electrical storm at the time in Nashville and a... a, a like a gunpowder manufacturing exploded and tore down part of his house in Nashville that he had just bought prior to Nashville, not, not Columbia. He lived here for around 22 years. He wants to retire to a larger home uh, called Polk Place, mm-hmm. which was downtown Nashville, no longer standing, tore down in 1901. But, you know, while that's being repaired, he spends two weeks living back in the Polk home with his mother here in Columbia. Mm-hmm. And then he moves to Nashville and he's, it gets pretty ominous in his diary um, the last couple of weeks he's alive. Because he's writing about how he's gotten friends who are getting sick and dying of cholera. Um, people are dying left and right of the disease. He receives a painting of the Spanish conquistador, Hernando Cortez, uh, from General William Worth. Kind of a, um, actually, it was sent to his wife, but it was kind of to say, you know, James Polk is the second to conquer Mexico. Cortez is the first. And so they hang it in their Nashville home. And when it gets to Nashville, they hear the same day, General Worth has died of cholera. Oh my God! So this uh, this whole cholera epidemic is following James Polk, and they decide we're going to leave Nashville. It's so bad here. I believe in one six week period in 1849, ten thousand people died in, of cholera in Nashville. And so they want to actually get out of town. They want to go to Murfreesboro, I believe, and visit family there just to get away from it. Mm-hmm. And I believe a couple days before they were supposed to leave, the story is that Sarah Polk walked into the parlor, and James Polk was lying on the couch, and he was sweating profusely. Um. And they just kind of canceled the trip. Um, there was an enslaved woman named Matilda, who, who was a cook that worked at Polk Place. Um, she contracted cholera and died 11 days before. Um, so around June 4th, she dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then James Polk gets cholera. He, he's sick. He's dying. There's a lot of stories kind of surrounding his death that, that some are 
seem to be fictitious, you know. But what we do kind of know is he brings in a brother-in-law of his who was a doctor, physician, to take a look at him. And, and what's really interesting here is, is James Polk's mother is there. Um, she is only one of three presidential mothers to have outlived their president's sons, but she's the only one to have done it without assassination. Wow. Uh, James Garfield's mother and John F. Kennedy's mother outlived their, them, but, but only through assassination while James Polk died of cholera. And so James Polk, his religious views are, are a bit different. He's not a very religious man. Um, he's not baptized up until he's on his deathbed. Wow. And he is what I refer to as a closet Methodist. Mm -hmm. uh, his mother, his, the Knox in his name, his mother is a descendant of the brother of John Knox, the reformer. So his mother's a devout Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. His wife is a devout Presbyterian. But James Polk's more of a Methodist. But, you know, the, the interdenominational kind of hate that's around at the time, his family doesn't really like Methodists. In fact, his, his grandfather would write on his own headstone, um, you know, basically, it's, it's a long poem, but basically it boils down to, um, if you leave Methodists alone, the country's going to be gone. Um, so wow. we poke family in that way. So James doesn't really tell his family he's a Methodist to write on the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is baptized on his deathbed. His mother brings in a Presbyterian and his wife brings in a Presbyterian to baptize him. James turns them both away. Um, he asks a Dr. McFerrin, who's a Methodist uh, camp minister, uh, mm -hmm. to come baptize him as a Methodist. And um, James Polk died around four o'clock in the afternoon on June 15th, 1849. Um, today's the 170th anniversary of, of the death of President Polk. Um, he was buried within 24 hours of death. It was law and they burned most of his clothing. Uh, there's one surviving article. It's a smoking jacket we have here at the Polk home uh, that was not burned. Uh, it was spared. We're not sure why, but it, but it was. Um, he was exhumed later on, nine months later. Um, in fact, uh, the man who built the Tennessee State Capitol building and modeled George Washington's tomb, uh, Strickland, uh, mm -hmm. one who modeled James Polk's tomb. He was the one who was the designer who built it. Um, after the Polk tomb was completed, James was exhumed and moved to uh, Polk Place, his Nashville home. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1893, just before the de demolition of the Nashville home, uh, James and Sarah Polk were both exhumed to move to the Capitol grounds where they are today. They've been there since 1893. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of the story of James Polk's, Polk's death. And it all happened, like I said, 103 days after leaving the presidency. Uh, he's dead of cholera at age 53. Well, and, and one of the questions that I had for you um, was whether he was sick at any point during the White during his time in the White House, because um, there was an article that came out in uh, 2014, and it was focused more on William, William Henry Harrison and his death. But it, in the process of the article, um, they talked about that um, with Harrison's death, it may have been attributed to bacteria that was in the White House uh, water supply. And in the article, they mentioned, you know, that this may be a factor in Polk's death shortly after the presidency or um, Zachary Taylor uh, dying in the presidency. Right. So, so it, it, I mean, it could have been. Mm -hmm. uh, so when they did exhume Taylor in like 2000 or 2004, I believe, mm -hmm. they found traces of cholera in his system. Um, so he could have had cholera, but there are also other things that could have, could have got uh, Taylor, of course, Harrison, famous for dying in, in the White yeah. House. Um, it could have been, we do not see James Polk really being sick during the presidency. Yeah. Um, in fact, Sarah is the one who gets sick during the presidency. In fact, she contracts malaria in the white wow. house and for about a week, maybe a week and a half, she, she's incapacitated. James Polk records it in his diary. Only time he gets really intimate with Sarah in his diary is when she is very sick of malaria. Uh, but cholera tended to act pretty quick, especially since one of the treatments was calomel, which was like a mercury powder they were feeding you. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I just killed you faster. Uh, and don't drink water. And if you have cholera, of course, you can have a lot of diarrhea, vomiting, sweating a lot. So you're going to need to replace those liquids, which doctors are telling you not to. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty well believed that James Polk didn't contract cholera so much in Washington or, or even in New Orleans. We've heard stories of him getting it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, only because he lives, like I said, 103 days after the presidency. Yeah. And that yeah. would not be consistent with, with cholera. Yeah. Um, usually it acted pretty quick, maybe two weeks you, you were, after you got it, you, you were around dead. And that's what we do see with James Polk. Um, he gets to Washington, he gets to Nashville, excuse me, gets to Nashville. And, and about um, two weeks, maybe after he first starts showing symptoms of cholera, he, he's dead. Um, and so he, he is tired. He is haggard. He's nauseous. It's more of an exhaustion feeling when he is in D.C., as opposed to when he does get to Nashville. He does contract it there is what we, what we really seem to believe now. Kind of turning the subject a little bit to some of the research that you've done on Elias Polk, um, who outlived uh, President Polk. Um, and it's interesting uh, in reading uh, your work on Elias and how there are these uh, false stories and you talk about uh, it plays into the, um, the faithful slave narratives that were popular at the time. Um, but then um, seeing and reading about Elias's uh, political involvement after the civil war was fascinating. And I was wondering if you uh, mind sharing some of that with our audience. Yeah. So Elias Polk is an interesting study in himself because when we talk about Elias, we can talk about, Many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he can be a memory study. Uh, he could be a study of emancipation. He could be a study of the enslaved. He could be a study of the presidents and the enslaved. He can be a study of political activism. He can be a study of just a bunch of different things. Yeah. So he's a very complex guy, but it just comes not much is really known about him. And what is known about him is so marred down in, in fictionalization mm-hmm. that we kind of kind of wade through it all to figure it out. So uh, Elias Polk is, is born in 18, around 1806 in, in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, Pineville. He would be the only child enslaved, born enslaved on that property there from what we understand. Um, but 1806 is the same year the Polks come to Tennessee. So mm-hmm. as an infant child, Elias Polk is, is brought to what is now the Neapolis area between Spring Hill and Columbia, Tennessee, right in the Duck River Valley wow. in Murray County. And he spends the first really 18 years of his life there. He's enslaved to James's father, Samuel. He grows up working as what's known as a a mill boy is what the records say, which he's, he takes the the grain to the mill to be ground into flour or cornmeal and he brings it back and he's doing field work and these things. Uh, In 1824, James marries Sarah, his wife. And shortly after we have record of uh, Elias showing up to their home here in Columbia, which Mm -hmm. they a cabin which was just down the street from the Polk home. It was a two-story cottage, if you will. Um, and Elias knocks at the door and just tells him, hey, old master sent me here. Um, he was a wedding gift to James and Sarah. Um, Sarah takes kind of close heed to him. She's a new bride. Elias knew the Polk family. And so Elias could kind of help Sarah wade through some of the family politics, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so they do kind of, she kind of relies on the enslaved for that, which is something we it's interesting to look at that dynamic. We also have Elias working as James's valet uh, and a personal body servant during his early political career. Um, so Elias is traveling between Washington, D.C. and James Polk as James begins his political career. He's in Nashville when James Polk is governor. 
But just because he's there doesn't mean he's part of the conversation. You remember, he is still enslaved to the president and he is viewed by James Polk as his property. So we, we can't get around that, that relationship. Absolutely. Um, we do know that during, during this time, Elias has an interesting way of working out with both Polks. Uh, for instance, James is coming from a working class slaveholding background. He views slavery as a as an extremely capitalistic venture. It's an economic benefit for him. He is an absentee owner, meaning he doesn't necessarily live in a plantation home. He lives on separate properties. Uh, he's not involved. He's very much involved with his slaveholdings. Um, we'll say, you know, some of the older narratives is James Polk was a good slave owner or he was kind and benevolent. Well, we do also we do understand that that that's completely, you know, myth of the lost cause, you know, Absolutely. Uh, you know, things like that. James Polk, his West Tennessee plantation in Somerville, Fayette County had an extremely high number of runaways. Um, his Mississippi plantation, which was in Northern Mississippi, Yalabusha County, a town called Coffeeville, had mm-hmm. one of the highest death rates for any plantation in Mississippi at the time. Um, and James Polk seems to not care. He seems to just, you know, his economic benefit when he'll only make changes and try to make conditions better for these people. When he's losing money, when he's making money, he, he doesn't care. He tends to hire crueler overseers. He sees those as the ones who can really work the enslaved the hardest. Ephraim Beanland would probably be, uh, fall along that line, which you might have read. I noticed in that your Facebook post today, you've been reading uh, Slave Master President. Absolutely. William Dusenberry, a great job with his book. Fantastic work. Um, really good numbers in that. Talks about uh, yeah. Elias slightly in that book as well. Um, but yeah, so uh, James Polk, has this economic view of slavery as where Sarah Polk is really comfortable with it. Um, she comes from a, a more affluent family uh, as where domestic slaves were, were more common around Sarah as they were James's growing up. Um, in fact, there's a story that James told on the week seen about five separate occasions. Uh, they're in the white house. And this is a great example of Sarah's views on the whole thing where she's a Calvinistic Presbyterian. So she sees the world in a set structure. Um, they're sitting in the white house and Sarah's fanning herself and just kind of says, you know, James, uh, the men who wrote the declaration of independence were, were wrong. And James kind of goes, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, all men were not created equal. Uh, look at us. We're sitting in this giant mansion, president and first lady of the United States. We have all the trappings of wealth and, and comfort we could ever want. We didn't choose this life. We were made for it. Uh, look at them out there. She points to a window and there's some enslaved people working. And she says, look, they didn't choose to be slaves, but God put them there to be slaves. Wow. And so she, she and James just kind of brushes her off where he's not into that whole religious structure thing that Sarah Polk is. Um, and so while James approaches slavery in this economic mindset, they're there to make him money. So he doesn't have many uh, domestic slaves. He prefers them to stay in the field working, making him the money. Yeah. Uh, Sarah believes it's fine. It's ordained by God. It's what's meant to be. And slavery is not so much of an evil institution. It's, it's a good as Sarah Polk views it, it's, it's in any attempt to do this could be messing with the natural order in her way. As whereas James does come out in, in his first address to Congress as a congressman in 1825, he does say that slavery is evil. Uh, it's an evil, common evil throughout the country, but he's still going to take part in it. That's what, it's what, yeah. he, what he made a point with it. So they do have these different approaches and Elias has to wade through that as an enslaved person of how to deal with them. One that sees it. Okay. It's wrong to do this, but I'm still going to do it versus Sarah who sees, okay, it's fine. Um, he is not really in the White House during the Polk administration. Uh, remember, I told you mentioned Paul Jennings. Uh, it was common hmm. for slaveholders to rent out enslaved people to others. Um, Elias would actually stay here in Murray County during during the Polk administration. 
Um, he is rented out for James's economic benefit. Elias Brimmer, he had no say in it. He's not getting the money. It goes to James. Uh, he's initially, um, there's a contract out for Elias Polk to a man named James Houston Thomas, who had been a former law partner of President Polk. It's a small plot of land here in Murray County. Elias is working it until about 1847, 1840, it's 1848 because it's a, no, it's 47. Um, James Houston Thomas becomes a member of Congress. And we get a letter from him to James Polk saying, hey, um, I'm coming to D.C. I'm going to transfer Elias's contract to a Mr. Matthews at the Nelson's House Hotel in Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just letting you know what's happening. Uh, and Elias goes to work at the hotel. He stays there until 1849. And we do have a letter in, in late 48 of James Polk writing to Mr. Matthews and saying, hey, um, you know, I'm not going to renew the contract. I want Elias back in Nashville when I come home from the presidency. Yeah. Uh, and so Elias comes to Tennessee or comes to Nashville after Polk presidency. Um, he's living and it's really kind of a good juxtaposition here because this is the first time we really see slave quarters at a, at a Polk home mm-hmm. um, because this is a townhouse and then the cottage they had was just a townhouse as well. The other stayed on either lived in the house itself that we have record of mm-hmm. uh, no really slave quarters. Yeah. Um, and we, the Polk place in Nashville was about 8,000 square feet. It was huge. It was this giant mansion and Elias is living in like an, it's like a 10 by 12, uh, just a shack on the back of the property. Wow. Um, he, James Polk dies in 1849. Elias is still enslaved by Sarah at, at Polk place. Um, of course the civil war happens. Uh, there's a story of general Don Buell after, you know, we mentioned, uh, 1862, February, Nashville falls to the union. Sarah Polk is publicly neutral during the war. Privately, she does show sympathies towards the Confederacy. So she is privately Confederate, if you will, but publicly she is neutral. There's a story of general Don Buell visiting Polk place as it was custom to visit Sarah Polk. If you were someone in Nashville. And as they meet with Sarah, as they're leaving, the story is that the company that is with the general sees see Elias Polk and just ask him, you know, what do you think of the war? What do you think of all of this? And Elias Polk's response was, I am for the rights of the South and the territories. Uh, so basically saying he's pro-Confederate. Um, now, the first time we see that story take place, and this is a story that's been repeated so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Personally, I don't think it ever happened. Yeah. Uh, The story was recorded 30 years after it was supposed to happen uh, by, uh, it was a, uh, two friends of Sarah Polk's um, that wrote a, uh, a book called a, it wasn't 88 years. It was um, the memorials of Sarah Childress. They sat down and did interviews with her. Mm. Uh, Anne and Fanning, Fanning, can't remember the names, like the Nelsons uh, wrote it in 1891. Uh, published in 1892. And so it's Sarah Polk trying to recall her entire life. Yeah. And, and two problems are, is, is number one, Sarah Polk is supposed to be in Polk place when it's happened. And this story takes place outside. Yeah. So how would she really know what these generals said to, to Elias? How would you know what his response was? And then it goes on to talk about what the generals said as they were a mile away from the home. Well, how would she know that? <laughs> Um, and so what this does is the time in which that book was written, it, it, it's, it's right at the height of the lost cause where um, American historians, especially in the South, were trying to soften the image of slavery, present certain slaveholders as benevolent or a kind owner. 
and try to say that the slaves had it better off under slavery than they did in freedom because of this kind institution. And so it fits right in with that narrative. It's making um, Elias Polk the poster child, really, of the lost cause, mm-hmm. uh, which to a certain extent he, he himself promoted. Yeah. In a way, because right after the Civil War, about 1866, he begins a political career. And what's interesting is he begins speaking on behalf of the rights of ex-Confederates, saying that they need their citizenship restored. They need their voting rights restored. And why do we kind of really see Elias Polk doing this is it comes down to his options. Um, at the end of the Civil War in Reconstruction, you have the um, Republican Party arguing that Elias is now free. He can work for a labor contract, get paid for the work he's doing. But we got to look at the reality of things. Elias Polk at the end of the Civil War is roughly 60 years old. He's an African-American in the South and he's illiterate. Uh, They can argue all day for a labor contract, but if he can't physically do the work, it's not going to amount much for him. So he starts doing what the really only thing he has left to do is, is talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had learned a lot from watching the Polk family, specifically working with James. And he begins a political career and, and he gives these big speeches. In fact, I can, I've actually got part of a speech he gave here. Uh, if you don't mind me kind of uh, thumbing through some of my notes to talk about uh, oh, go right ahead. one of these here. Um, let me see. He says uh, it's a speech in 1867 uh, in Nash- Nashville, speaking to uh, a conservative crowd in Davidson County. He says, my heart beats with alarm when I contemplate the dangers of the country. What were the dangers? They were enslaving white people from the ballot box. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, you know, we have to, you know, allow for ex-Confederates to vote. Then he goes on to say the Republicans are wrong. They're using African-Americans as tools. They don't really care about you. They only want your vote. Um, and so on and so on. And, and he becomes very popular for these things. Now, whether he believes it or not, I, I don't think he really believes in the promotion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's more about who's paying the bill. Yeah. You know, um, Eugene Genovese in Roll Jordan Roll makes a, good, makes a good point here about the retirement of slaves, if you will. That in slavery, there was a system of uh, paternalism, I guess, is what they were promoting. Um, they basically said, if you work for me and do, do a good job, if you're a good loyal slave, then you can have this retirement. I will provide for you in this retirement. Of course, they didn't provide for the retirement. We do see other slaves, the one caring for the elders, you know, we don't see slave owners really doing it. Um, and Elias Polk picks up on that and says, okay, you preach paternalism during slavery. You took my best years from me. You are now going to provide for me in my old age. You're going to pay because you always told me you would. Yeah. You're not going to get out of it. And so he's really going to manipulate the racial hierarchy. He's going to feed into it. He's going to use their own racism against them in that way. And we start seeing the struggle over Elias Polk as he gets, he becomes a porter for the Tennessee State Senate. And it's a position. He can say, I was appointed to the Senate. He's a janitor. But he can say it. They can say they brought him in. He gets appointed to Congress. He works at the House of Representatives. Once again, they can say, hey, I was appointed to Congress, but he's a janitor. You know, he's not really doing much of anything. Um, and so the Democrats can wheel him out and say, look, the South's not so bad. It's not so racist. We have opportunities for these African-Americans if they would just listen to us. And the Republicans say, but what, do you, what is he really doing? He's not doing much of anything. And so we do see this power struggle over who Elias Polk is going to give deference to. Does he give it to the Democrats? Because the Democrats feel they, they should have it um, because they've always had it. But the Republicans feel, okay, we gave him freedom. He should give it to us. 
And so we do see this unique phenomenon of Elias Polk aligning with the Democratic Party uh, and pushing their narrative because they're the one who are more readily available to pay the bills. And he has that connection to the Polks. Mm-hmm. Or he comes from, he has the last name Polk. He takes it on after emancipation. And so he can really push the narrative of, well, you remember James Polk. He's a big Democrat. He's a great Democrat in your eyes. I have the connection to James Polk. Let me talk. Let me, you know, pay me to do this. I'll come out and do it. Um, but it's almost a lot like the Booker T. Washington earlier than this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Washington comes out in the 1890s and says, if you just focus on economic opportunity, social and political rights will follow. You don't have to fight for full and social equality. That will follow if you better yourself economically. Uh, Washington said, you know, we can be like the hands, uh, the fingers on a hand. We can all be separate, but work as one. Mm-hmm. Uh, an endorsement of Jim Crow segregation, what it breaks down to. Yeah. Uh, Elias Polk is going to push that same narrative about 30 years earlier than Washington. Elias comes out and says, look, as African-Americans, as a former slave, I'm not going to be your equal. I don't want to be your equal. I'm not going to try to be your equal. Um, Of course, we do know that he does try. He tries to gain voting rights. He's denied it um, for his support of relief support of the Confederacy. He's he's denied it and his affiliation with the Democratic Party. Um, He does join the Tennessee Colored Agriculture Mechanical Association, which raises money and funds vocational schools throughout the state. Um, so like I said, in that way, he's very much like an early Booker T. Washington while preaching economics over social equality. Elias Polk is going to kind of behind the scenes work for both. Uh, so it's kind of those things of, okay, he may be saying it to give himself a cover, to give himself protection, to give other African-Americans an opportunity to rise and black uplift. But he, in his times and where he's living and what he's doing, he can't just come out and say equality. So he's going to try to work within channels that he has in order to push that narrative. Um, Sometimes it works for him. Sometimes it doesn't. It leaves him very much hated uh, in certain communities. For instance, Republicans criticize him. What are you doing? You're setting your race back by doing this. Um, Other African-Americans follow. I've got another big quote here that I think is probably probably one of the most impactful. It's T. Morris Chester, uh, who was an African-American orator. In fact, he was the first African-American in the United Kingdom to receive a law degree. Oh, wow. He's a pretty big guy, and he's back in the United States at this time. He's in Bowling Green, Kentucky uh, in, uh, I believe, what is it? It's 1871. Uh, they're celebrating the abolition of um, slavery in some of the West Indies, uh, the Caribbean islands there. Um, and in it, he, he gave a big speech here, and a big part of it is about Elias Polk. And in it, he says, um, I'll read you the quote here. I have understood in this state, meaning Kentucky, which clings more tenaciously to slavery than any other and which has not recognized the manhood of the Negro, there is a black man from Tennessee who is now canvassing the state in the interest of the white man's party. It is hardly possible to conceive a greater crime or deeper ingratitude than to see a black man born whose back or that of his blood kin has felt the lash of oppression of which the white man's party is the champion. Uh, May this wretch who renders his name Elias Polk uh, enjoy the contempt which his depravity merits. May he receive the infallible brand of a traitor so that all good men and women may scorn him whenever he appears. May the church of which he is a member expel him in disgrace as being unworthy to associate with Christian people. May every black race that meets him shun him as a lonesome toad and a hissing viper. And then it goes on to say, may he live a life of misery and wretchedness, uh, which he abdicates for others. And the thought of dying and desiring to die uh, may have never died. May he exist through the time as one of God's judgment judgments upon the earth as a warning to humanity, cursed by angels, cursed by men, 
and cursed by demons as a traitor to God. Wow. And so, as you can see, the, the African-American community, the Republican community, they do not like what Elias Polk is doing. Mm-hmm. He is setting back the cause of their civil rights by doing this, but it comes down to his own personal gain. What is Elias Polk going to do in his own personal interests? Um, kind of think about it. He is human in that way. We all tend to work in a personal interest at times. Um, and Elias Polk is going to do that. It's about more of what can benefit his career as opposed to others in his situation. Um, and he pushes that. Uh, he kind of becomes friendly with some clan members uh, at times. And it comes to those lines of patronage. For example, um, John Calvin Brown, who is governor of Tennessee, is one of the founding members of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. When Elias Polk is uh, in the, remember he's working for the Tennessee State, Tennessee State Senate as a porter. Uh, mm-hmm. He's given a raise of $40 at the uh, request of the governor. Uh, but then you find out that the governor is married to Sarah Polk's niece. And so they have that family connection. It comes mm-hmm. back to deference to a Democratic Party, to James Polk in the end. Um, and Elias Polk, with very few, very limited options, is able to unfortunately set back many accomplishments made during reconstruction of the African-American community. But what we do see in the act of self-interest, Elias Polk is going to manipulate a system that was built to subjugate his own race, to carve out his own sense of humanity, to carve out his own sense of autonomy. And in a new system, Elias Polk is going to really um, create something for himself. And I think that really is summed up in 2017. I participated in, uh, the laying of a headstone at National City Cemetery for Elias Polk. They gave him a new one, him and his wife, Mary. Uh, and at the, uh, I spoke there, but what really hit me more than anything else was a Dr. Herbert Lester, who was uh, the minister of Clark Memorial Chapel mm-hmm. in Nashville. It was a church Elias' funeral was initially held in the 1880s. Um, when asked about what, what he thought all of this kind of meant, while you know giving the headstones to these people, um, he said that it, it really meant something because it showed that their lives mattered that they were more than property, that Elias was more than property. And that right there hit me. In 1873, uh, Frederick Douglass spoke at the uh, fair, one of the fairs that Elias Polk had coordinated. Mm -hmm. Which kind of shows you, Frederick Douglass is being invited to places by Elias Polk. Obviously, Elias Polk wasn't fully, uh, you know, this big democratic figure. You know, he has these openings up. Uh, And at the... um, The event in Nashville in 1873, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass addressed the crowd and said, we are no longer property, but we are persons. And to me, that really hit hard. It echoes what Dr. Lester is going to say over 100 years later. They are more than property. And when it comes down to it, we we got to think of Elias Polk as a person having his own agency. Uh, He made his own choices. Some I don't agree with. Many of them I don't agree with. In fact, most of what he said I don't agree with. I got to say that. Um, But he's a man living in his time and finding a way to live in his time. It's about survival for Elias Polk. Um, And with a new form of, uh, you know, freedom came with a new form of servitude. Um, But that entirely was really Elias's choice to make, um, which makes him such an interesting, interesting figure to study. And it's just something we're start we're just now starting to look at. Well, and and that's really the work of history. You know, it's not. It's about getting to those complex stories because for so long, the historical narrative has been very simple. There's been the good guys and the bad guys, and there's so much gray area because it's people just like us trying to make decisions, not necessarily having all the information or 
are just being in circumstances where there just aren't that many choices. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something uh, people tend to forget today. You talked about that gray area, um, that there is a gray area. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you hear people talk about, um, should we vilify and tear down things like uh, the Jefferson Memorial or the Washington Monument because of some of the attitudes that Washington and Jefferson held? Um, Polk's a good example of this. You know, um, People tend to forget they are complex individuals living in a time which is different. They're dealing with different issues and circumstances and choices and limited options. Um, there are many, many things we can admire James Polk for. His drive, his ambition, his work ethic, I think is something that um, every American president needs to be familiar with. Every American should admire. But there are also aspects of James Polk's own life. His decisions in the Mexican-American War. Yeah, he's the aggressor of the war. Yeah. Uh, then kind of is not forthcoming a lot of information on it. Um, he is going, you know, his slave holdings. I mentioned that the death rates on his plantations, his attitudes towards race, which are very much within his time, are something we can look at and say, okay, this is not a good guy. And on the same hand, we can have a president that is a model of presidents and a model that we don't want presidents to follow. Yeah. And we can look at him and say, okay, these are, it's the same thing. It's the same guy. Mm -hmm. Like I've got back to Washington and Jefferson. There are many things I admire much about both of those men, fantastic Americans mm -hmm. that were both involved in something that I say is not great and Absolutely. really a dark stain on American history. But that doesn't mean I should stop admiring them. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean because I admire them that I shouldn't, that I should ignore the bad things. So, so it's definitely, it's definitely both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and and as we're wrapping up, um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, in terms of your career, um, you've worked at the, the Polk House. Uh, I saw that you had, um, uh, you had served as an intern uh, working on the papers of Martin Van Buren. Um, what's next for you? Uh, where is your research leading you? Uh, so I believe there still is some work to be left done on Elias Polk. Um, it's just one of those things where, you know, every couple of months I'll revisit it and go, oh, okay, that's something new or a new way of looking at it or questioning a new story. Uh, for instance, um, I rewrote my work on Elias Polk, I think four or five times. And each time I'm revising something and saying, okay, I was wrong the first time. So if you want <laughs> a good lesson in historiography, I guess I'm the change in some of the narrative, uh, in my own work. Um, I think when we look at what, where I'd like to go next, um, I, there's a good possibility of me working at, at a university this, this coming fall, mm -hmm. uh, getting into that, um, hasn't been any contract signed yet. So I'll refrain at the moment from saying which one don't want to put them on the spot, I guess, or anything. Absolutely. Uh, I'll let you know if it happens. <laughs> um, I did work on the Van Buren papers for, I was an intern there. Uh, a lot of transcription work, learned a lot about the relationship at the time and really kind of got a deeper understanding of the, of the Jacksonian period. Um, from probably the man that founded the Democratic Party, Martin Van Buren. Exactly. Uh, really, I got a deeper appreciation for who Van Buren was and learned so much by working there. Um, we'll say, shout out to Dr. Mark Cheatham, uh, who's one of the, head of the heads of the project. Great, very, very smart guy. Wrote several books on, on Andrew Jackson, um, Old Hickory's Nephew and uh, you know Andrew Jackson Southern, things like that. Great mm -hmm. books. Um, I, t I focus a lot of my work on, on the issue of, of slavery. Um, and the Reconstruction era. Um, I tend to work more in the Jacksonian period, though, so I kind of cover a, a wider range of time, but I believe they're so interconnected that you kind of got to put them in context by talking about both. Um, I will be moving on from the Polk home shortly. 
Um, next couple of months, I'll be leaving to pursue other other uh, jobs, other careers. Um, so, all as it saddens me to say, you know, all things must pass. You know, good George Harrison quote. Got to throw a beetle in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's a, a lot of good opportunities coming up and a lot of good things happening. Um, I'm working right now. I, I received an email the other day from uh, Michael David Cohen, who is actually the head of the um, Pulp Papers. Um, they're working on doing the compilation work. Um, and so some work about Elias maybe maybe published by the University of Tennessee Press um, soon in a compilation volume for, for the Pulp Papers. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But nothing nothing signed yet until the contracts are signed. I, I, say, I say nothing yet. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some good works coming up. Uh, some Absolutely. good opportunities and some job advancements, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all of your work in the field of history. Um, wherever you go, I have no doubt that you will continue this great work and be a success, bring to it um, the insight, the passion, and the knowledge that you've shared with us. So well, thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure to talk. Um, I'm a listener. So, so always, you know, I guess it's good to have a fan call, talk to you sometimes. Um, Absolutely. But, but thank you. I'm always happy to talk about Elias Polk or the time period or, or James the presidency and all that. So um, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I look forward to having you at the Polk home one day too. come take a tour sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. As I said at the beginning of the episode, if you'd like to read Zach's article or check out his appearance on C-SPAN 3, go to the podcast social media. On Facebook, I'm available at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Links to those materials are also available on the website, which is presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thanks so much again for joining us. And until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.